from the New Testament, we're going to read from the Gospel according to Luke. And brothers and sisters, in the Reformed Common Lectionary, that's a, a lectionary that is used by most Reformed churches in the world. There are certain years for certain Gospels. This is the Luke year. And you know that we also do some of the John Gospel. We have been there a while. John with his theological interpretation of who Jesus is and what happened when Jesus was born in the new creation, in um, a fullness of life, life eternal. That means something of a different quality of life. But uh, now we're back for the next few Sundays uh, in the gospel according to Luke. So let us listen to God's word for us. Luke, Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 51 through 62. Listen to God's word for you today. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. As prophets catch fire, as disciples draw flame, as apostles walk in the Spirit, O Holy One, Holy Three, fill us with a fervent desire to enter your kingdom. Lead us by the cross of the Christ to live in the love of Christ now and forever. We try you and God, by your Spirit, plant your word within us that we may follow your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and never leave him. May we find our home in your kingdom and our life in your Spirit. Amen. So in this part of the church year, the Reformed Common Lectionary takes us back to the earthly life of Jesus. This part of the year we call ordinary time after we had the season of Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter and then some special days um, uh, before we get here to ordinary time. And in this time, brothers and sisters, our focus in, in worship is on our Christian life. On the question, but what makes us then different from people who don't know Jesus and people who have never come to the understanding that we have been called to serve 
a kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world, that we have been called and that we have been promised to, to gradually live into an abundant life, a gift that we already have. So until the end of October, we will find ourselves on this road to Jerusalem, on a journey as it is presented by Luke to discover Christian living. Here in the middle of, almost in the middle of the gospel, we get a turning point in the gospel of Luke. Jesus, fully aware of the timing of his destiny, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now Luke is the only one who uses this phrase. And I think he suggests that Jesus had an unyielding, in a sense, even stubborn intention to meet his fate. His fate as expected by the prophets. His fate as set by God his Father. And so Luke gives a prominent place to the city Jerusalem. Begins and ends his story in Jerusalem where Jesus died but also rose from the dead and where he ascended into heaven. Luke is the only gospel writer who frames his story about Jesus and uses the most familiar and loved stories of Jesus in this journey. Within this journey, we, we find the stories of the Good Samaritan. You all know that. The prodigal sons, maybe two sons, and the loving father. But Luke is intentional in the way that he uses these stories. He uses them to convey a certain theology, a certain understanding of Jesus in our everyday lives. But twice in this journey, he reminds us that we are on the way to Jerusalem in chapter 13 and chapter 17, if we are with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, when Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, maybe he saw this long, a long road and down the road, a hill with three crosses, knowing that this is where everything was leading. But of course, when you, when you read this gospel especially, you must connect it to all the stories and to the larger context and the mission of Jesus, which Luke gives us in chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And already when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue on that Sabbath, we get a heads up that this good news may not be accepted by everyone who hears it. If you go home and you read the rest of chapter 4, you will see how the people from his own village tried to kill Jesus then. Because Jesus says, this is good news indeed. But you who are so used to it will not really understand it. And then they got angry at him. So in our reading today, we read that the people living in the Samaritan village did not want to receive Jesus either in the village. And Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus went to do in the village. But maybe in his whole in the big frame of his story, he wanted to affirm right here at the beginning of the journey that Jesus indeed had authority to forgive and that this authority extended to all people, even to those racially and religiously mixed Samaritans. 
And the disciples, of course, they were in the beginning willing to, to go to the Samaritans as Jesus did. They were willing to reach beyond familiar boundaries. But this didn't last all that long. When the Samaritans turned Jesus away, the reaction of James and John is almost comical. And maybe, if you think about it clearly, maybe we would also respond that way. I mean, some of us can understand it. Lord, they don't want to accept you. They have nothing good to say about you. Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven? Let's fry them a little bit. Consume them, burn them out, that nothing of them is left. I wonder what they were thinking. Even though a well-meaning scribe in some of the texts added, just as Elijah did. You remember the story of Elijah who called fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal to consume them and to prove God's holiness. Now, if you really want to understand what's going on here, page a few pages back. Stories leading up to our reading are about power and authority. Jesus rebukes an unclean spirit in a little boy who is healed. Jesus has power over demons. Then he tells his disciples when they're so excited about this power of Jesus that he would in the end end up in death in Jerusalem. They didn't understand it. But then they started to argue with each other about who was the most important. Who of them was the closest to Jesus? Who had the most to say and the most authority within this group? And then Jesus told them that at least among all his followers, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the smallest. In another place he says, if you want to be the boss, you must be the servant of all. But John didn't get this which sometimes makes me wonder if he really was the beloved disciple. John showed his real colors when he reported to Jesus that they saw someone casting out demons in his name and that they tried to stop the person because he does not follow us. Maybe John was thinking that if someone else could do what Jesus did, casting out demons, that their own greatness was diminished especially if the person who was doing this wasn't one of the 12. In our language, if someone, in, someone we see someone doing good things, Christian-like, and they don't belong to the church, we always say, how oh, and why? And, and they're not of us, can we not stop them? But Jesus, brothers and sisters, wanted us to understand that the 12 and we should not think of ourselves or see ourselves as God's only representatives in this world. Rather, when, rather when we see something, something happen, that we should celebrate God's power, that it is showed and evidenced by others who are not with us, not like us. That God is working in all kinds of ways, also in the other people. I mean, that's probably the most difficult thing to demonstrate this kind of attitude in our daily lives. 
and also in the church. Because in a sense, we think like the disciples, we are the most important. We do understand what Jesus is calling us to do and to be. And so we know our own reactivity to disagreement when you perceive insult coming your way. We know how we act up if we don't get what we want, even in the church, maybe especially in the church. Just think about your last few posts on Facebook. Especially after Friday's Supreme Court action. Think about the last time you expressed your outrage at other people's ignorance and heartlessness and stupidity. Or think how we aggressively police other people's beliefs and behaviors and actions and want them to be just like we are. Because we are the example, of course. You see, followers of the Christ cannot and should not use power and authority or privilege to retaliate and to revenge. That's not part of who the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus are supposed to be, as the story of the Samaritan village proves. When Jesus didn't only disprove of this demonstration of power, but even rebukes the disciples for thinking something like this. And in the church, brothers and sisters, leadership from a position of power should not be a choice for people who live the abundant life that Jesus gives. We should never think that we are the people with the know-how and the only people with authority. Or that that person may be standing right in front of you right now. People should never be taken out and ordered to leave the congregation just because they don't agree with the majority or the way that we do things. And then there follows the words of Jesus to would-be followers. And we wonder if Jesus really said these words because they sound so unlike Jesus. They actually sound harsh. But Jesus is making some important statements on following him. There was the disciple who volunteered to follow Jesus everywhere. And then Jesus reminded him that... um, He who was God, born as a human in the world, was essentially homeless and had to rely on the hospitality of sinners and tax collectors. So what does this mean for followers of Jesus the Christ? And the one Jesus invited to follow that wanted to wait, likely his father was still alive, and according to the Jewish religion, some uh, or sons had obligations to their parents. And one who wanted to quickly go and greet his family, were all those unreasonable? You see, the question is if Jesus practiced or promoted extreme hardships. I don't think so. I think Jesus used hyperboles, which is easy to abuse or to misunderstand. But he used them to, to, to understand and uh, for us to understand, to indicate how important it is to live in a different way. 
how important it is to live with a new vision of what is important in life. You remember Jesus saying, sell everything you have and, and give the money to the poor and come here and follow me. And if your eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to do wrong, cut it off. In our story today, never look back. Leave your family, let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow me. You see, Jesus was truly a savior, a savior, fully embodied in human flesh. But he surely wanted us to understand that there are implications for the way that we live when we follow him. He lived fully and he shared in meals and, and he hung out with sinners and tax collectors and all the bad people, you know, those people. His opponents even accused him at the stage of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors in Luke chapter 7. But it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that even the most basic elements of life, you know, a place to sleep in and food and, and even family, can sometimes be our highest priority. And Jesus tells us that all these things that we treasure, that we love so much, that they are less important than the good news of God's love for everyone. God's love for all people, irrespective of the stance and position. I mean, even those who are not with us, when we see God at work. Even the Samaritans who do not want to receive Jesus and churches and, and the way that we have always lived as Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church should come after the good news of a new relationship with God and a new relationship with each other. But we do know, we do understand that many things come in the way of total dedication to this mission. Sport and homes and duties to parents and family and all those things that are always more important than God's mission. It's so easy to compromise our relationship and God's call to us in our everyday lives. We know when we have the choice between going fishing or, or being involved in some mission project that takes our time. When we have to choose between worship and ball games, soon football time. And even I find it difficult to be here when I can watch football. <laughs> or going on a family vacation or instead of volunteering for a mission trip, paying for a new car or remodeling instead of supporting ministries somewhere, understanding someone else's viewpoint or enforcing our own will. You see, there is a difference when we reassess all these things. Not only the three that Jesus explained in, in Luke and talked about, but our whole ethical and moral lives together in this world. When we reassess our commitment to indeed live that life of fullness, the abundant life, when we find out how we prioritize loyalties, 
God calls us to live and to serve and to follow, even in difficult places. And then to begin to experience life eternal and the abundant life when we start to serve each other and creation and those around us who are never thankful for what we do. We experience the otherness when we hang on to priorities so unlike those of this world, when we see ourselves as servants and followers of Jesus the Christ. Amen.